0: Well, good, soon-to-be afternoon. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. This is like... um, Okay, all the Patriots people out there, stay quiet, because most people in this room don't want to hear it and are really hoping for the opposite outcome. Neither here nor there. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Um, This is a great day, because it's Super Bowl Sunday, and it's an awful day. Why is it an awful day? You guys are dark people. What's well, bad? Everybody starts talking. Um, no, it's bad because football's over after today. That's a, some, some people are celebrating. Um, so happy Super Bowl Sunday. It's really interesting that Super Bowl falls on today. Uh, we're in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And this passage really is a Super Bowl passage for the life of this church. Redemption Gilbert. When this church was planted in 1991, Tom said this last week, the first text that was ever preached in the midst of this church was this passage. But this passage is also a Super Bowl passage for the life of the church internationally, historically, globally. This is kind of something's going on in this passage that happened with the early church that's meant to continue into today. So on that note, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we are going to read verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. So open a Bible or an app or whatever will get you there. Google will as well. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you to hear a word. We want to hear a real word. We want to hear a living word. And God, you promise that your word will not return to us void. God, which means for us to hear, you have to give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us ears to hear this word uh, together as this church and this community. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear for what you want to do in us individually, Um, what you want to do in us in our relationships, what you want us to do with uh, what you've given us, what you want us uh, to do in the world. Um, God, and we believe that you'll speak. We need your spirit to do it, so I pray that you would unearth all the gifts that uh, you want operating right now, uh, that we would see and hear all that you want us to do and ultimately be changed unto it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I noticed something interesting uh, this morning. There's still some of you wearing jerseys of neither of the two teams who are playing today, okay? It's interesting. It's like, I'm going to hold out and show my allegiance. I'm still a Steelers fan, right? Or I'm still a Packers fan, or I'm still a Cardinals fan, right? Or just so you know, I am still a Broncos fan, like forever and ever and ever, right? You still want to show your allegiance, When I say the word allegiance, um, one of the first things many of you think of is the Pledge of the Allegiance. I was in Mrs. King's kindergarten class, and there's very few memories I have really etched in my brain about kindergarten, but one of them is these inflatable letters in which they taught you the alphabet, and the M was Mr. Mouth. It was like this mouth, but there was an M behind him, and you learned M from that. But the other one is is that we would stand up every morning and say the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I remember that. So every time I hear the word allegiance, I think about that. The word allegiance literally means, if you look it up in the dictionary, loyalty or devotion of a citizen to a government or a sovereign. What was happening in this community in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is their allegiances were changing. They were recognizing something that was so deep that their loyalties of many kinds and in many forms were changing. And they were beginning to recognize that something has just happened. And yes, we sit under Roman sovereigns. And yes, we sit under some religious sovereigns, if you will, but something has happened, and one who has come, the one who has come is, in fact, the sovereign of all sovereigns. The one who has come and that we're experiencing is actually the king of all the kings. He's the Lord of all the lords. So you can't understand Acts 2:42 through47, unless you really, really tend to Acts 2:36 that Tom dealt with last week in Peter's sermon is this final conclusion where Peter says this, let all of the house of Israel, therefore know for certain, that word certain means safely or certain, you would know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, a couple things in this, realize and remember All the Jews were coming for the Pentecost festival. This was Jews. That then the Spirit of God descends upon in Acts chapter 2. So all the house of Israel, who he's preaching to, are all Jews. And he's saying, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, they've definitely, some of them, witnessed his resurrection. Others have heard about it. But I promise you, this statement is still a little disrupting. I mean, the hymn here is Jesus, who was a real man, born in Bethlehem, man of Nazareth, you know, who many of these people walked amongst, right? They realized, like, this Jesus had body odor just like other people had body odor. This Jesus had bad breath like other people had bad breath. This Jesus had to work as a carpenter like other people had to work. He's a normal human being that's doing extraordinary things. He dies on a Roman cross at the point of which many of these people are going, yep, he was just a nutcase. case. He's getting killed like everybody else. But then three days later, people are like, he's gone. And he's appearing to people. That Jesus, the one with bad breath? I don't know for sure if Jesus had bad breath, but I'm assuming certain times he did, right? But he was a man. This Jesus, him, God has made both Lord and And Christ. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, church, this is your foundation. This is what's driving it all. David Gooding says this. The church's distinguishing mark was the foundation. The distinguishing mark of the church, the foundation on which it was built, was the confession that Jesus risen from the dead is both Lord and Christ that he is both Lord and Christ. Now, if you've, or you're a Christian, you've been around the church much at all, or you're a person in this room that may go, I don't know about that, but I've been around Christians, you'll hear, roll off the tongue of Christians, this statement, Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. I want to ask for a minute what the connection between those two terms is. Because they get it. I'm not certain we entirely in our context get it, but these Jews understood these two passages fundamentally. The psalmist said, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jonah, there's this clear statement, what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what the Jews knew. The only one that could ultimately bring salvation is the Lord. And they knew this because the psalmist also says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They knew fundamentally the Lord is sovereign, is powerful salvation belongs to him. The only one who can bring salvation is the Lord. So when Peter now says, he's made Jesus, the one you walked amongst, who had dirty feet, who was a measly carpenter, who did have bad breath, who you understood, who you knew, this Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, here's something we've really got to see in this connection. How these two things are connected. The first is this major point. Salvation is God's property. Okay, now here's why I want to slow down and make this point. The foundation of this church is the confession that this Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead and appointed him, displayed for you that he is both the Lord and Christ. Salvation is God's property. Nobody can distribute salvation but God. So then we have to ask well, what ultimately is salvation? What do they mean? I hear Christians say saved, and at the end of this text that we're in, in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What's salvation? If you're around Christianity at all, or have been around Christmas much as all, you'll heal this hymn, and it's the hymn, Joy to the World. Now, if you're familiar with oldies, this isn't the song that says, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, right? <laughs> joy to the world, all the boys and girls. It's not that one. It's the one that goes, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now, sadly, in many of our churches, that hymn will remove, now when we sing it, one of the best lines in the whole song. And of that line is, here's what it says. It says, no more let sin or sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow. Anybody know what it says? As far as the curse is found. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So what then does the curse mean? Because that's gonna get at ultimately what salvation is. Well, the curse is this idea of what did sin infect. Well, the song itself says sin and sorrow. So let me just ask you this. Regardless of who you are, what you believe, where you are, have you ever encountered sorrow? I promise you, whether you're sitting in this room and you're Hindu or Muslim, atheist or agnostic, Christian or otherwise, we've all experienced sorrow. And truth be told, no human being really, in the end, likes sorrow. So part of this is saying it's salvation from sorrow, but ultimately what causes sorrow? And that's sin. But then it even says something fascinating. No more let thorns infest the ground, that the curse has impacted all of creation. Human existence, the life of botany, if you will, the trees and the forest and the thorns, right? Right? All of the animal kingdom, all of life, human life, has been infected and affected by sin. Infected, affected, and affected, if you will, by sin. Everything, including you and me. Salvation is therefore the deliverance from that. So what caused sin? Well, in simple form, so we don't just get into a huge theology lesson, it was a belief in a word that was alternative to God, namely that came through the enemy who the Bible calls Satan. Now, let me stop again because many of you hear the word Satan and you go, ah, not sure I buy it, not sure I believe in it. Let me just say this. Again, whoever you are in this room, regardless of what you believe, if you don't believe in a Satan, you have to believe in something that gives an account for evil in the world. Because if you don't believe that there's evil in the world, you have your head in the sand. There is evil in the world. And you have to give an account for it. I believe the Bible gives the best account for it in that a part of God's creation, not a not an entity equal to God, but a creation of God, an angel, tried to elevate himself to the place of God. God said, no, he tries to now sell us lies over and over and over again. And when we buy alternative words to the word of God, it manifests itself with catastrophic consequences because in believing an alternative word at whatever level and we put it into practice, that's sin, That comes from Satan. So in classic Christian teaching, salvation is the final and full victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death, which, let me tell you, is the answer to our sorrows, is the answer to our deepest confusions, is the answer to our utmost problems, and they aren't all just the problems that are out there. The amazing thing about Jesus' teaching about salvation is he says, sin's the problem, And every time you go, if they would just change, Jesus is the master to go, every time you point that one finger, there's three more pointing back at you. He says, this evil hasn't just infected, effected, and affected them and it out there, it's infected, effected, and affected you in your very heart. Salvation, the only way the world's problems can be fixed The only way our state's problems can be fixed, ultimate problems, the only way our neighborhood's problems, our family's problems, our relational problems, our material problems can be fixed is God. And salvation is God's property, which means he has to be the one to bring it. Now, here's what I want you to understand about salvation. Salvation flows from lordship. It's the Lord who saves. That means it's Lord first, then Savior. The logic of the Bible is that the Lord brings salvation. Now, we encounter, the vast majority of us, God, first through his saving grace. We do. So we encounter him as Savior. We come to him as Savior with his arms open wide. Right? We just sang about this. In him saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. We come to him as Savior, we follow him as Lord. You can never come to a Savior who's not Lord, and you can't obey a Lord who's not a Savior, which that statement's really good news. Because as we try to follow Jesus as Lord, we trip and we fail, and we thank God that our Lord, our God is a God who saves, and doesn't save once, but continually saves, amen? The Lord is the one who saves. It's Lord first, and then Savior, So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean for us? Truly, stop and think about this for a minute. What does it mean for us as Redemption Gilbert, as a community who gathers together every single week to declare Jesus is Lord? What does that mean for us as a church? Who is it calling us to be? The purpose of Luke in writing the book of Acts is writing to say, here's how God formed the people of God, the church, and he's writing it so that every generation from them would go, you're a part of this. You too, not just, oh, amazing them, you too are to be this. What does it mean for us at Redemption Gilbert to follow, not just profess, but to follow Jesus as Lord? And the only way we can answer that question is what does it mean for you in all the uniqueness of who God made you and all the uniqueness of the roles that you play as maybe father or mother or as son or daughter or as student or employee or boss, even at the level as Patriots fans, remember that, Patriots fans, right? What does it mean to be a fan of something that Jesus is Lord? From a cook to the real estate office to a father or mother who's staying at home, Right? What does that mean for you individually to say that Jesus is Lord? And then what does it mean for our world? This is really important right now in the times in which we live in. Um, we live in crazy, crazy times, right? That's just true. We really do live in crazy times um, and can get really disrupted by leaders that are in the world, by situations that are going on in the world, concerns about what out is in the future. Here's something the church has to understand. The church does not just profess Jesus as Lord for the church. Jesus doesn't give us the option to just profess that. Jesus is the Lord of the world. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the sovereign of sovereigns. And we must remember that and then therefore take on a very life Take on a very life that displays to the world, hey, the ways you're going are not the way. This is the way, the way where Jesus is Lord and Savior. The things you're following, they're not the truth. He's the truth. And we're gonna display for you what him as truth ultimately means. The way you're living and you're seeking after life isn't life, he's life. But we have to then embody that, now, that's a big word, embody. What does that ultimately mean? It means live it, right? It means we can't just people, uh, be people of talk. We've got to walk it, right? So I'm a father of four children under 11, and I can't tell you the number of times that I feel like just getting as loud and as excited as Elvis Presley when he sings a little less conversation, a little more action, right? Because you have these moments with your kids where you'll say really simple things, Like really simple things. Okay, we're driving home in the van. All six of us are in it. We're going to get home. We're going to clean up all of our stuff. And then we're going to get ready to take baths or showers so that we can get ready for tomorrow. And then my kids walk in and they immediately grab the TV controller and they'll turn on. My boys are really big Coyotes fans, which means they're definitely not front runners. But they're big Coyotes fans. Uh, That's the hockey team in Arizona. But they'll turn it on and I'll go, hey, guys, we said we were going to clean up the room. Yeah, 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 I know. Do you? Like, because if you knew, your shoes wouldn't be on the ground, right? Like, if you knew you wouldn't be talking about it, we'd be doing this. And let me tell you, we live in a world that loves the chatter, that loves the talk, and truth be told, we live in a day where the church loves to speak about it, but too often doesn't live it. Cyprian was an early church father, and he has this great quote where he says this, which is speaking to the Christian church. He says, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. So here's the deal. We're living in a day and age where there's all kinds of protests, there's all kinds of marches, there's all kinds of opportunities for us to make our points. The opportunities to write on Facebook or to hold a sign in which we write, We love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's what Cyprian's saying, following in the way of the apostles, following in the way of Jesus, is that we're not those who just write signs. We're those who actually love our neighbors as ourselves. We can't be the people that just pontificate and talk about our virtues and how we do it better. We have to practice them. We have to display in the life of a community such a level sacrificial love because that's what our Lord told us to do. And he told us that in doing it, we would find joy and find it to the full. In a world that lacks joy, we know joy is not found in saying, there's not enough for us. But joy is found in giving, even above and beyond receiving. We are not those people who speak great things. We live great things. The connection between the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, then the preaching of Peter explaining that, and now is this statement. The spiritual is always, 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 always connected to the material. And you begin to see that in the life of this community. Their relationships are changing, right? Their material possessions are changing. The way they're experiencing their calendars are changing. The spiritual is always connected to the material. The supernatural always directly impacts the natural. Now, let me tell you honestly, I hate that phraseology. Hate it, and I wrote it. Okay? I wrote it because I know in our culture there is this division between spiritual and material, between supernatural and natural. Guys, there's one world that God upholds by the word of his power. Okay? That means this very stage is held up by the word of his power, which means your eyebrows are sitting above your eyes by the word of God's power, which means your nose is above your lips by the word of God's power. Which means your head is still on your head or not on your head by the word of God's power. He upholds the universe. In Him, all things consist. That means everything's supernatural. You can't encounter the real God and not have your life really change. It's impossible. It doesn't mean it changes every way you'd want it to in a moment, but you will change. And that's what's happening in the life of this community. Their allegiances are changing. Their hearts are changing. Their devotion is changing. And it's changing in the end their practice. So what does lordship affect? Well, let's look at this passage. Here's what this confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior affects. It affects their relationships in 244. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So, who are these all? Well, if you flip back to Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, it says this in verse 5, and now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, it was men and women that were clearly there, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Now it's about to describe for you all the different types of people that were there. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. There was both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and people of Arabia, Arabians. And we hear them telling in our own tongues and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? Right? Now, that's not unlike our day today, right? My kids go to school with Muslims and Hindus, with Jews, with people of African descent and Latinos. I bet most people in here, 40 and above, likely even in their 30s, did not experience in their local schools the diversity that we experience right now. My bet, you didn't live in a world that was nearly as diverse. Let's use this term for a minute, pluralistic. And let me just quickly define something. Many people, a lot of times in the Christian church, people bemoan pluralism, not just in the church, but outside. And a lot of times, I want you to know, what is worthy of bemoaning is the view that in pluralism, all views, let's just say right now, all religions or views are equal, I just want you to know, if you believe the Bible, you don't believe that. (laughs) Because here's the thing in the Bible. We believe Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. We believe Acts 4. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but at the name of Jesus. Because salvation's God's property, there's one God. There's only one God who's delivering salvation. He's delivered it to us in Jesus. We don't believe that. We don't believe this is a book just for our faith community. We believe the Bible's true truth. We believe the Bible is fundamentally public truth. So that type of pluralism we don't believe. There's another type of pluralism, which is just reality. We live in a pluralistic world. Every city, the largest migrations in the history of the world are happening in our time. Some from just rural parts of China into urban China. But all around the world, people from all around the world, the nations are coming to our cities. That's fact. And you look at that and go, "What we say a lot like they do. What do we do with this? We say that. But they were saying, what do we do with this? Because God was moving in the midst of it. To the point, just think about how much he'd have to move, that all those different types of people of all different cultures now are identified as having all things in common. If you're honest, you just read that verse and you go, the Bible's clearly not true (laughs) because there's no way you bring the people that are that different together and say they have all things in common. I mean, truth be told, I'm sitting in this room right now and I'm going to admit, I don't have everything in common with you guys. There's people in this room I heard yell that are Patriots fans. I am not a Patriots fan at all. In fact, you could put me on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. Do we have all things in common? My wife's sitting in this room. I like steak. She doesn't, right? We don't have all things in common. Is that what this text is saying? Or is it in fact saying, which I would say it is, that there is something so foundationally, so fundamentally, so life-altering, an allegiance-offering, altering that when everybody adheres to that, it has the power to bring people together in such a radical fashion that you can look at them and go, they have all things in common. Do you know the church actually gets more diverse than this? These are just Jews. Even if they were Jews and proselytes, they were just Jews. But then the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles, which is insane in the mind of a Jew, insane that this is actually happening. And then Paul pens to the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, here in the church, there is no barbarian, there is no Scythian, there is no slave, there is no free, but Christ is all and in all. How did barbarian, Scythian, slave, free come together? How do those who've never had a family and those who've had a family, how do those who are rich and those who are poor, how do those who are coming from different cultural backgrounds, different political persuasions, how can they actually sit in a room with a life together that's strong enough that we say all things they have are in common? Folks, I'm just telling you, I'm not totally certain I've ever fully, entirely experienced this, but I believe in all of my heart, Jesus Christ has that power and desperately desires to display that power in a community together. I promise you, the ills of our world are not going to be solved by singing songs about can't we all just get along or by picking up the Beatles songs about love and saying, or can we just imagine? It doesn't happen by just imagining it. Something has to fundamentally start in our heart, and continue in our heart that changes us fundamentally to make that happen. Because I'm telling you right now, our world displays right now, there is no shot at ultimate unity, at loving community, at a way in which you could look at people so different and go, no, they actually have all things in common. We need a God encounter to make that happen. And these people had encountered it. And it affected their relationships. They not just sat in a room with people that were different than them, but they began to invite them into their homes. They spent day in and day out with them. The other thing it affected was their net worth. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need there's this, um, when you're reading narratives in the Bible, there's this idea where you're always trying to figure out, is this prescriptive or descriptive, right? Like, is he saying this is what everybody has to do, or are they just describing what happened? And at this moment, you read this, everybody in the room's like, I pray to God it's descriptive, right? Like, I don't want to sell my possessions and give it to those people. But you have to ask, what was happening with them that they were able to do this? One of my favorite uh, things to do, I love doing Bible studies, you could call them, or discussions with people that are really different from each other. So believers and unbelievers, people that come from different traditions. And when I'll do these kinds of studies, we'll read a passage and then I'll ask four questions. These are worthy of remembering. They're super simple. But I'll just say, we read the passage and go, what did you like about it? Everybody kind of starts talking about what they like. What did you not like about it? Everybody talks. Then I'll say, what confused you? People will talk. And then, regardless of who they are, where they are on the faith journey, I'll say, regardless of where you are on your faith journey, if you were to apply something from this passage, what would you apply tomorrow if you were going to apply it? And let's try to apply it. Those are the four questions. Whenever I've done this passage, which I've done, and I'll say, what do you like about it? They're like, you know, I love the community. I love that they're sharing things. What do you not like about it? The community and that they're sharing things, right? And then they'll say things like, it sounds like communism more people today would actually like that, but neither here nor there. Um, This reality of what is happening in these people, and it sounds like communism, there's a couple of things you have to realize in this passage of them sharing their possessions. The first one is really, really important. This is voluntary, which is so important for you to understand, not just to be accurate, but if it was mandatory and it was forced It wouldn't be because God had so radically encountered them that he changed them. They were just forced to do it. And this wasn't even a faith community that mandated, if you're going to be a part of our community, you have to give this much money. And it's a consistent pot. This was individuals who saw needs and said, what do I have on hand? And then even if the need was so great, they go, I don't have that on hand. They went, oh, but I have a car that I'll sell. Oh, but I may even have a piece of land that I'll sell. What in the world has to happen to individuals into a community for that to happen? Like so radically transformed that you're willing to sell your stuff to meet the needs. How deeply did they encounter God through the Holy Spirit and his son Jesus Christ that they really applied what Jesus tells us in Philippians chapter 2 to consider the needs of others as more significant than your own? Folks, they had a deep God encounter. In allegiance altering, even the allegiance they had to their stuff, their hands went off of it and they considered the needs of others as more important than their own. And this carried on through the life of the church. They concerned themselves with those who were of the household of faith, but not just of the household of faith, but everybody else that was out there because they followed Jesus who was the Lord who modeled this. They were now boundary breakers and barrier breakers. They were bridge builders. And they did it through sharing. And then their calendars are affected. It says day by day they're doing things. Their calendars are changing according to following Jesus as Lord and what they'd encountered. Their privacy, they're inviting people into their homes. Look at 246. And then it says they were sharing meals together with glad and generous hearts. Folks, I want to just tell you, this is so significant. This does not happen by me standing up here saying, Shouldn't we be like this? Or are you going home and hitting yourself, you know? Bad Christian, be better, be more like Acts 2. Right? That's not how it happens. You don't do it by a rubber band snap on. You do it through deeply encountering God. How does that happen? I came across this quote uh, this week by a guy named James Dunn. He says this, The Spirit of God transcends human ability and transforms human inability. The Spirit of God transcends human ability and transforms human inability. If you read this passage and you go, I can do that, you're in a bad place. You're not honest. You're not truthful. You're not seeing how significant it is, how substantial it is. If you're sitting here and you read that and go, man, that's compelling, but that's terrifying, and in all honesty, I'm talking about me right now. I read that and go, that's compelling, and then I go, that is really scary, And then if I'm being really honest, what I do is I go, let me reinterpret that somehow. That's descriptive. That's not prescriptive. Let me figure out a way to get out of that. Let me resist that right now. So I thank God when I read a quote like this and remember Jesus' words when he gave a hard teaching to the disciples and they said, who then is going to be saved? And he said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We're called to be this type of community under, through, and immersed in the spirit of God. The spirit who connects us to Jesus, who said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And when you go, it's impossible. Remember, the spirit of God transcends human ability, but transforms and transforms human inability. How does he do it? And this is where we're gonna end. How does he do it? How do we create an ongoing cultivation of our community, of our homes, of our very lives that experiences Jesus at this type of level? Because here's something you have to remember about this community. They were directly in the proximity of Jesus. His words were still ringing in their ear. They're under the palatable power of God at these very moments they're with these people all around they're experiencing these things they're experiencing the works and words of jesus and what's happening in the community around them we go well we're thousands of years later how do we continue to work out this thing that god has worked in us the way they did it and carried it all the way to today that we can be in this room and say that we're christians is because of acts 2 42. they devoted themselves Devoted, which means faithfully, continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God. The apostles were listening to the words of Jesus, taking it all the way through the grid of all the Old Testament, all the truth that they had known, and they went, this is all true, this is the fulfillment of this, and they began to deliver it to people. And these people were devoting themselves to the word of God, consistently and faithfully, together, and individually, they were doing this. This is a moment where I'd say, when you're in redemption communities, talk about the word that we had from the sermon. Talk about other aspects of scripture, but whatever you do, devote yourself to the word of God. You don't need to hear what the leader has to say. You don't need to hear what I have to say. This is why this church from its inception believed it wasn't so much what Tom had to say or what Tim has to say or what Paul has to say or what Tyler has to say. That won't change us. What changes us for the good of us, our families and the world is the word of God, not the word of man. We have to devote ourselves to this. So I encourage you in your small groups, but then individually, that you've never had more opportunity and more resources. Get version on your phone. There's all kinds of reading plans. You can start with a three-day reading plan. Don't look at this and go, these are these amazing people. These are normal human beings, some who knew a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, some who knew none, just like us who are in this room. And they went, just take the next step. Just devote yourself to it. Continually, and faithfully stay in it, and you will be amazed at how the word of God is living and active. But then you have to do it together. That's the next phrase. They devoted themselves, the apostles teaching, and to fellowship. This word just means shared participation in the spirit, that they were consistently getting around other people who God was working in through the power of his Holy Spirit. You can't do this alone, and you can't do it just here. It says day by day. You need people who are sharing in that same spirit who aren't experts, who don't act like you're mediator between God, that's Jesus, but who are with you in the process of going, I'm sharing in this life of the Spirit. It's really hard, and there's a lot of moments i got to claim His saving grace and Him as Savior as I follow Him as Lord, but you need them. We need each other. We have to do this together. Devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, The breaking of bread, people discuss, like, is this formal communion, like that little wafer in that cup? Or is this large meals? Here's what I'd like to call it. They're Jesus-shaped meals. Eat together. You don't just encounter true fellowship by going, let's have a formal Bible study meeting where you don't ever know each other. Meals and drinks have a lot, a big way of us getting actual relational together. But when you eat these meals together, when you're eating it with other people who are sharing in the Spirit, Every time you gather together, remind yourself, we are here because of grace. We are here because of the person of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the spirit. And then every time we gather together in a room like this that makes a big meal really complex, we'll take a wafer and a drink. But we will never forget that we are a people formed, shaped, and empowered by Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And we have to do that Devote ourselves to it continually, faithfully, progressively in the midst of it. And here's the last thing. They devoted themselves to prayer. And just like the last one, people go, prayer, devoted themselves to prayer. Are these formal prayers, like written prayers, or are these spontaneous prayers? Here's what I think it is. Prayer. (laughs) They prayed formally. They prayed spontaneously. They prayed for little things, and they prayed for huge things. They prayed for their child's homework, and they prayed for world peace, and everything in between. They prayed for presidents, and they prayed for governors, and they prayed for bosses, and they prayed for miracles. They prayed, and they devoted faithfully and continually did it. Now, Tim has said to us in this study, and I can't tell you how compelled I am by it, I don't want to just look at this and go, man, that early church was a great church. Luke, who wrote this book, doesn't want that. He wants us to go, God, we're to be those people. We're to be those people by grace and only by grace, not by our own power. We're supposed to be those people by the power of the Spirit. And he's saying to us right now, we will never be those people. We'll never experience that kind of life, that kind of gladness, that type of generosity, that type of diversity, if you will, if we don't devote ourselves to the word of God if we don't surrender under Jesus, if we don't do it together, if we're not eating with people who are like us and not like us, and if we're not in the end, hear me on this praying, 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 praying people. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. God, we ask you for your Holy Spirit. Make us these people in Christ's name, amen.